What truly matters is teachers' expertise. The most important tip for new teachers is to set out your boundaries. 44% of jobs will be automated. It reinforces cycles of disadvantage. Hello listeners and lovers of learning and welcome to episode 14 of the Education Research Reading Room, the podcast that brings you into the discussion with inspiring educators and education researchers. I'm Ollie Lovell and it's a pleasure to be your host in the ERRR. I'd like to start today by acknowledging the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation on whose lands this podcast was recorded. I'd also like to pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging as well as to any Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander people who may be listening today. This episode, we're talking to Professor Jennifer Gore. Jenny is a laureate professor in the School of Education at the University of Newcastle, Australia, where she was the Dean of Education and Head of School for six years. She has held executive roles for the Australian Association for Research in Education, the Australian Council of Deans for Education, and the New South Wales Teacher Education Council. Jenny is currently Director of the Teachers and Teaching Research Centre and Co-Editor of the International Journal, Teaching and Teacher Education. Jenny's educational and research interests consistently centre on quality and equity, ranging across such topics as teacher socialisation, reform in teacher education, pedagogical reform, teacher development and student aspirations. Jenny's decade-long program of work on quality teaching, which is one of the topics that we'll be talking about in detail in this episode, has had significant impacts in government, Catholic and independent schools throughout Australia, especially in the New South Wales and the ACT. Regarded as one of Australia's leading teaching and teacher education academics, Jenny is deeply committed to supporting teachers in delivering high quality and equitable outcomes for students. Before we jump in today, I want to talk very briefly about Twitter. Twitter is a social media platform that we've mentioned quite a few times in the ERRR, but I know that it's a platform that a lot of people have found it hard to get into. It actually took me about four tries over a period of three or so years before I worked out how to use it in a way that works for me. But I know that not everyone has the time or is keen to spend the time required in order to work out how to use Twitter in a way that works for them. So I'm hoping to help out. This year is my plan to compile a weekly blog post that summarises all of the best things that I've come across from the edu Twitter sphere during the previous week. This post will come out on a Friday afternoon with the idea being that readers will be able to check it out at their leisure over the weekend. If you'd like to sign up, just jump onto ollilovell.com and click the button that says sign up for a weekly digest. This button's on the right if you're viewing on a computer and scroll down to the bottom on your mobile. The last digest that I put together included links to a concise and comprehensive introduction to metacognition and how to teach it, a comparison of teacher, student and whole class talk across different countries, and an article on how to teach gratitude to teenagers, among many other things. So if you're interested in that, please jump onto ollilovell.com and sign up. That's probably enough of a preamble, so without further ado, let's jump straight into episode 14 of the ERRR with Professor Jenny Gore. Jenny Gore, welcome to the Education Research Reading Room. Thank you. Great to be here. I really appreciate the um, invitation, so thanks. I know it's a busy time of year. So the first question we always ask, Jenny, when someone comes on is, if you're at a party and, and you meet someone and they say, oh, hi, Jenny, what is it that you do? What's your answer? Uh, I'm a academic in education at the University of Newcastle, uh, where my research is primarily looking at improving schooling for t- and for students. That's my short answer. <laughs> 
Fantastic. And if, if they were to ask a, a bit of a longer question and say, you know, how, how did you come to be where you are today? And this is very much the topic of, in some ways, your first paper that we'll, we'll be speaking about today. What, what, what's kind of your history of how you got to where you are now? Um, short version is that I was one of those kids actually who grew up always wanting to be a teacher and my aunt was a teacher, my grandmother, there were several actual great grandfathers uh, in the family tree who were teachers, so sort of a long line of teachers Um, and I kind of kept changing what kind of teacher I wanted to be experienced different stages of schooling, you know, so I loved the idea of a primary teacher briefly in biology briefly. And I think I even had a, a brief um, uh, attraction to home economics for the tiniest period. But in the end, it was physical education attracted me. And I, I think that was mainly because I thought physical education teachers had a different kind of relationship with their students. And there was something about that um, more personal relationship that I felt I had with PE teachers and, you know, a bit of an interest in physical activity that um, meant I went into PE teaching. I remember in year 11, actually, one of my, or my English teacher saying that she thought it would be a waste for me to go into teaching. She thought I should go into law. And I think as soon as she said that, it actually fortified my interest in being a teacher. It seemed quite disrespectful of the really important work that teachers do. So, and then I I fully intended on being a classroom teacher, but um, personal circumstances meant I ended up in Canada, and um, hard to get a working visa study for a while and and then fully intended going back to teaching after my master's degree but happened to go to a conference where um, head of physical education human movement studies at the university of queens all right we yep you met the um head of physical education at queensland uni yeah and he offered a short-term lecturing position and i thought well why not and I basically have either lecturing or studying. Um, I had I took a chance on studying in the United States for my PhD, but it was a wonderful opportunity to just meet people from around the world uh, who shared uh, an interest in quality and equity in education and um, came back to Australia in 1991 and have been an academic uh, full-time ever since and doing a lot of teaching uh, about which I remain very passionate but also um, increasingly doing a lot of research and research training uh, which I also love. So the first paper of yours that we were discussing tonight is entitled Reconciling Education Research Traditions and it was a speech uh, it was a speech that you gave. Um, could you tell us about the genesis of that speech? So every year, the um, Australian Association for Research and Education invites somebody to be the Radford lecturer. So Bill Radford was one of the uh, very early greats of educational research in Australia. Um, And this lecture, I think, has been going for something like 12 or 15 years. And so uh, an invitation goes out to a distinguished academic in the field, and I was asked to do it. And and so that's how I came to even have what might I talk about uh, but it was interesting they asked me almost a year before I had to present the, the, the lecture and I remember waking up around New Year's Day thinking oh my goodness this uh, terrifying public 
performance is coming up in 11 or 12 months time and it just struck me that that issue of how we reconcile our differences and how we work across different paradigms and some of the challenging questions that people had asked me over time um, might be a really interesting hook into talking about the state of educational research in Australia at the moment. Do you see this as a massive issue in Australian education at the moment? Do you see large splits? And in what ways, if they exist, are these large splits negatively influencing uh, educational research in Australia? Yeah, I, I mean, I don't think it's a unique issue in Australia. I said I don't think it's um, a problem that's un- or an issue even that's unique to Australia. But I do think that over time, um, educational research has sometimes privilege certain traditions over others. And I think in Australia, because we're a relatively small community of academics in education compared to, say, somewhere like the US or the UK or even Europe, uh, of course, which is massive, um, that when there are these kind of moves where, uh, you know, one tradition maybe get some negative press or where people sort of shift towards one approach or another, um, it can have a more profound impact because a certain tradition might rise to dominance and then um, the students who are trained in that tradition sort of carry it on. And I guess that was part of what I argued in the paper is that we have uh, over recent decades in Australia privileged sort of qualitative forms of research and critical analyses, which are terribly important over um, some of the other methods, which can also um, yield some real insights. And and, and in particular, there's been a bit of a dismissal of numbers where people have, uh, you know, that's sort of stating it too simplistically, but where there has been a bit of a turn away from um, quantitative methods in research because of their, you know, link with um, you know, what some people call neoliberal agendas or, uh, you know, positivism or whatever. And so I really wanted to just bring that issue to light. And, and so in the lecture talked about how um, quantitative methods can be very important for what we might call emancipatory projects where we're you know, working on social justice issues in education, but exposing um, some of the issues for students who perhaps come from more disadvantaged backgrounds by providing relevant evidence in the form of statistics. Given that you stated that um, qualitative methods have been the ones that have been privileged uh, in recent history, that means that you were someone speaking from the majority uh, on behalf of the minority. Can you tell us a little bit, like for that to happen, obviously you had to come over to the side to understand the value of quantitative approaches to research. Um, So can you tell us a little bit about, was there a moment when you were like, oh, maybe quantitative is really valuable or was it a person or a particular relationship or how did you come to that realization? I think uh, I was never closed to the possibility of the value of quantitative methods and I guess that whole debate that's existed in the field of, you know, are you more qualitative or quantitative is actually not even the right kind of question to be asking and for me it's always been about the questions that you're trying to answer and what kinds of methods or techniques or whatever are useful for answering those questions. So I've never been... um, 
you know, I'd never described myself as one or the other. I had more experience, I guess, in doing, first of all, some pretty heavily theoretical analyses using Michel Foucault's work to look at. Um, for my PhD, I looked at critical and feminist pedagogy discourses as regimes of truth, which is a very long way away from um, you know recent randomised controlled trial and, and massive longitudinal study that I've been engaged in. Um, but it's all actually been oriented at, at the same thing, which is trying to make um, schooling better for both the teachers and students and trying to produce more equitable outcomes from schooling. And uh, so... I mean, back to your question of, um, you know, what was it that enabled me to, to move sides? Um, yeah, I, I guess I don't really see it as a major move so much as a, a kind of a gradual transition into embracing some of these more experimental methods uh, more fully. Um, maybe even particularly as my capacity to do really large-scale research has increased as a result of, you know, past track record and being able to win, you know, decent sums of, of funding. A number of the projects that I've um, run uh, in recent years in some ways are quite ambitious. I, I try and do things, um, you know, on a fairly large scale because I think that kind of evidence often is going to be uh, more powerful with policy makers and others and so you know to me that's sort of where you have to locate yourself if you really want to make a difference. Got it. Where do you think this association between like neoliberal ideals and quantitative approaches comes from? Mm, that's a really interesting question. I think you know it is that um, overemphasis on um, you know evidence and the and evidence in a particular form that characterizes a lot of the kind of performativity and accountability agendas that people talk of with neoliberalism and so um, just because for instance uh, you know people are concerned about PISA scores and competitiveness among nations um, there can be a tendency to say, well, that's only about um, this kind of overemphasis on um, you know numbers and uh, comparisons and markets and individualism and a whole lot of stuff. It, it may well, in part, be that, but it also can be quite useful in identifying you know major trends and patterns in terms of inequalities where there's important work for us to, to do as educators that needs to be acknowledged. So I guess I can see, you know, those both sides of it, but I, I think some people wouldn't sort of more narrowly have associated um, the kind of numerical work as necessarily having those, um, you know, more right-wing, as some people would describe them, um, orientations. Got it. While we're, while we're talking about data and impact, I'm wondering, to what extent do you think uh, your speech had an impact on the Australian or international education community in relation to these questions? Uh, and also, just more broadly, how was this speech received? Yeah, I, I mean, I actually received a lot of very positive comment, uh, including a number of emails from people who sort of thanked me for 
affirming some of their own views or giving them the kind of freedom to step outside of the, the kind of more narrow fields that they've been working in. And I was quite, I mean, heartened, but, you know, somewhat surprised as well that um, people felt that way. You know, so I remember one um, mid-career academic contacted me and said that, you know, she was now going to go and work with some German colleagues who were doing more experimental methods because she, um, you know, really could see the value of that for her work, but hadn't um, felt kind of the freedom to do it until I put the argument in the way I did. So and that was really nice. Um, I mean, you don't tend to hear from the people who uh, thought you uh, said the wrong thing, but I was quite interested, I suppose, a number of people who are those who um, have really dominated educational research in recent decades were among those who, um, I guess, congratulated me on you know, the argument I've made and, and said that I made an important contribution at, at this time. What kind of questions have you had from audience members in relation to this, this presentation? Um, I'm trying to think. I, I, uh, I mean, at the Radford lecture, they don't create time for people to ask questions publicly. Um, I think mostly I have had a few people since the lecture approach me when I've been at conferences and things and, and actually talk to me about what a randomised control trial is and whether the topics are investigating might lend itself to that kind of methodology. So it's people really wanting to understand a bit more about um, you know, how this can really work and how uh, they might be able to utilize a broader range of methods in your own research. All right, well, we might jump on to the second paper now. The second paper was entitled Effects of Professional Development on the Quality of Teaching Results from a Randomized Controlled Trial, an RCT, of Quality Teaching Rounds. Um, in this paper, you talk about different approaches to improving Australia's teaching workforce. and you con and, and you talk specifically about two approaches. One is kind of what some in the business community might call top grading, essentially um, getting rid of those who, who aren't doing a good job and making sure we're hiring ones who are going to do a better job. Uh, and the other is kind of approaches that, that uh, help and support people who are today in service or already in the pre-service teacher kind of program. I was wondering uh, how you feel about the balance of how those two approaches to improving the teacher workforce is being struck in Australia at the moment. I think that uh, we have a history in Australia of supporting teachers through investment in teacher professional development activities. It's built into the enterprise agreements. It's built into you know, accreditation requirements. We have staff development days where teachers are... Um, released from teaching duties to be able to work with each other to, to learn and so on. So a, a commitment to professional development is, I think, deeply embedded in our education system. But I think that a lot of it is fairly, um, dare I say, light touch <laughs> and that it's a uh, real mm -hmm. impact on teachers uh, is somewhat limited and there's a, a lot of research that says that most professional development has fairly weak effects 
And I think uh, as a result, um, as I suggest sort of in the paper too, that these approaches to you know, weed out the worst teachers or um, through evaluation of quality, which is happening a lot in the US, or to um, regulate who mm -hmm. comes into teaching by um, setting up policies whereby we only have the so-called best and brightest. Um, I think there is more policy mm -hmm. emphasis right now on those kinds of approaches, particularly the latter. That is the regulation of who enters teaching. And um, as I argued in another paper that we called Who Says We're Not Attracting the Best and Brightest, um, the other program of research that I've been doing on student aspirations actually demonstrates that among school children, there are a lot of really high achieving kids who would want to be teachers. And that's what they're saying while they're at school. And um, what I argue okay. is that, or we argue, it's a paper written with some colleagues, <laughs> is that we'd do well as a system to try and nurture the interest that does exist among young people rather than potentially deterring the very people we seek to attract by setting up this kind of um, overly um, regulated um, kind of negative discourse around the quality of teachers. Because indeed, when we say that we need to attract better and brighter people, um, it implies that the, the people who are currently teaching are not already that. And um, I don't think that does a lot to really support um, develop the confidence, um, develop the commitment to education of some people who are currently in teaching. I, I think we need to support teachers better than we do. So, I mean, the short answer to your question is I think on balance right now in education policy, we're putting more emphasis on the top grading, as you called it, rather than into the help and support for teachers. Um, although rhetorically, of course, um, you know, we, we continue to... Uh, I shouldn't say that. I should say not only rhetorically, but also in terms of investment. We are still putting funds into um, teacher professional development, of course, but I, I do have some concerns about its effectiveness. Got it. And of course, um, you, as you alluded to in your paper, the work of, for example, Brick on uh, how important trust is within school systems, that's just really, really undermined by this kind of top grading approaches and the kind of things you've just talked about. Um, something else I did want to pick up on was um, you just talked about kind of nurturing and supporting young people to aspire to be teachers. And you also talked about earlier in the piece, you talked about how when you confess to one of your teachers um, that you wanted to be a teacher, they kind of discourage you. And I, I've also had that experience, in fact, from... Um, a, prev a previous principal, uh, actually, when I told them that I was thinking about becoming a teacher, they, they said something to the effect of, oh, you could do much more than that. And I thought, wow, what the heck is that supposed to mean? Your life is supposed to have been dedicated to educating people and you don't think that's a worthwhile, worth, worthwhile course? <laughs> that's, that's very strange. Uh, anyway, uh, enough of that. Um, <laughs> um, the next question I have is, you, so the, the quality teaching rounds approach that this paper was about um, is based upon the quality teaching framework, which is a, a framework with um, three pedagogical dimensions and 18 elements of teaching that you've, that you've put together. Um, boiling teaching down to, to a framework is an incredibly ambitious and challenging task for anybody or any, any group of researchers. I'm really curious to know how you approached that problem. Yeah, so 
the work grew out of um, a project commissioned by Education Queensland, the Queensland Education Department, um, several years ago. They were wanting some research done into what they called at their time their leading schools. And they thought if we understood what was happening in leading schools, <clears throat> not just in terms of elite schools, but those that were performing really well, um, we might be able to spread that to more schools and therefore improve outcomes for kids in Queensland schools. But that if pedagogy um, project was born. And so Jim Ladwig, um, Alan Luke, Bob Lingard and myself were um, commissioned by Education Queensland to do this project that became called the Queensland School Reform Longitudinal Study. Martin Mills and Deb Hayes, who are also well-known educators now, um, worked on the project at the time as PhD students. And so they want, uh, wanted to know what was happening in Queensland schools. Um, part of that was understanding what was happening in classrooms. And so we were looking for um, a research method to go in and observe what was happening and analyse and compare what was happening in Queensland classrooms rooms. The best framework we could come up with at the time was the authentic pedagogy um, model developed by Fred Newman and his colleagues in the United States. When we took that to the Queensland principals, they thought it was too narrowly focused on yeah. academic outcomes because they were really concerned about social outcomes as well. And so what we then did was we trawled through the um, educational research literature looking for factors that affect um, student outcomes, factors related to teaching that affect student outcomes. And we basically included in the model um, those kinds of aspects of classroom practice where there was evidence, empirical evidence, that they were making a difference for kids' outcomes. And so that research model, Productive Pedagogy, um, was developed. We originally had 20 elements after the data was collected. There was statistical analysis done that identified four dimensions of um, productive pedagogy. <clears throat> Subsequently, when we collected more data, we found that one of those dimensions didn't hold up in measurement terms. And at the same time, the New South Wales, uh, it was called recognition of difference. What was that dimension? What was the one that didn't hold up? So there was intellectual quality, uh, quality classroom environment, okay. um, recognition of difference and relevance at the time. The Queensland, uh, sorry, the New South Wales Department was really interested in also um, looking at a model of pedagogy for teacher development purposes. So productive pedagogy was actually developed for research purposes and it wasn't designed originally for PG. Um, but New South Wales was really keen to, to think about it in PD terms. Okay. And so that's where we looked at the quality, sorry, the productive pedagogy model. And given that one of the dimensions didn't work in measurement terms, we then looked at modifying the model and so that's where we ended up with intellectual quality, quality learning environment rather than quality classroom environment because we wanted to ensure that it was a focus on learning. And we called it significance. And basically significance mm -hmm. encapsulated what was left from recognition of difference and relevance. So the, the two models, productive pedagogic and quality teaching, have the exact same uh, intellectual lineage in authentic pedagogy. Okay. Um, but basically the quality teaching model is a, a more refined version. So that's how we came up with it. Got it. Um, and there was a lot of time obviously spent, um, you know, getting the wording right and thinking about where the elements actually fit under the dimensions and doing some trialling to do factor analyses and various things to, um, you know, test the validity of the model. But, um, yeah, that's... 
that's its background. And I mean, to go back to the beginning of your question, it is rather ambitious to think that we can try and summarise uh, good teaching in, you know, three dimensions and 18 elements. Totally. But I think the flip side is, and I think one of our greatest failures as an education profession is that we really have not come to terms with what is good teaching. Mm. And so we make it up, you know, we, we, we reinvent the wheel effectively yep. or we dismiss what someone says to us when they're critical because we say, well, that's just your view. And so attempting to codify good teaching I think um, has proven to be a real contribution to the profession because teachers are overwhelmed often with all this information that comes at us all the time about how we should be doing this, that or the next thing and, and it's, it can be, it can feel very fragmented and, and, um, and massive um, and what this framework does is try to distill not in a prescriptive way or a technical way, but in a, in a conceptual way to distill what is good teaching. And as you look at the framework, if you um, have, have it in front of you or if you can see it or you know, even just thinking about the dimensions and the elements, it's quite comprehensive. So it deals with how knowledge is treated. It deals with how students are treated. It deals with uh, issues of equity. It, it deals with issues of classroom management. Um, it deals with uh, you know the degree of communication in a classroom. It deals with um, you know how much we attend to um, we control the curriculum versus give students some input and so on. So it's it's a comprehensive, um, but. I think quite manageable uh, is how teachers uh, report on it. It's, it's comprehensive but manageable to have those three big ideas and the 18 elements that basically elaborate the three big ideas. Wonderful. Um, you mentioned, or I mentioned Steve Dinham's work before and it sound, from, from my knowledge, it sounds like what was happening in Queensland and New South Wales at a similar time was two projects in tandem that were both going into classrooms, looking at expert teachers and trying to work out and kind of in some ways codify what it was, that what it is that they do um, in order to learn some broader, more global lessons from this. I was wondering if um, there was anything strikingly different about the two approaches that you thought worth commenting on recall the Dinham work in enough detail to really comment on it but I from under, my understanding is it was looking at um, whatever they were called at the time but you know looking at best practices or really high performing teachers yep. uh, is that right correct yeah and I think one of the differences is that we were looking at teachers who were not necessarily identified as top performing and so when you only look at the best it's hard to know whether uh, that's just what most teachers do. Anyway, um, you know, what, what is the, the distinction? How do you help uh, other people who might be struggling a little bit if you don't know what it is that they don't do, perhaps? So I think that one of the strengths that, that came from um, looking really comprehensively, because we were looking in so-called leading schools in Queensland, but there was certainly a broad range of teachers in those schools uh, and their lessons that we scored, if you like, or coded using the quality of the productive pedagogy um, framework, um, 
scored across a very broad range um, you know, of the spectrum. What we find with a lot of teacher assessments, not that this is a teacher assessment <laughs> per se, but what we find with a lot of teacher assessments, what they talk about a lot in the U US is that everyone scores about the same. You know, everyone rated as good. Um, this is not about rating teachers, it's about rating teaching. And what we find is that there's a real spread of quality when we look at lessons. Um, and that, that's an important point in terms of its uh, kind of um, you know, validity as a measurement tool for research purposes. So, you know, running alongside our commitment to professional development, um, you know, we have been running this program of research. So we do use it in assessment, you know, for assessment of teaching in the research um, for the professional development. It's, it's, it's more about for the, refine, for the analysis and refinement of teaching. Got it. As I was looking through the quality teaching framework, I was kind of comparing it to things that um, I've been emphasizing this year in the in the senior maths department at my school and trying to trying to draw some parallels and see what what might be there and what might be there might not be there. Some things that I've I find it really important to focus on in my own teaching are, for example, assessment, um, how that's carried out, how it's reflected upon by teaching and how it's used to inform uh, future teaching. Um, as well as things like distributing information over time, uh, which could be called, you know, essentially spaced retrieval of uh, information, um, space practice, things like that, or distributed practice. Um, we know that to learning, those kind of, you know, constantly revisiting content and seeing seeing learning like over time, right? Um, John Mason says, uh, learning teaching happens in time, but learning happens over time. So these kind of longer term conceptualizations of how learning occurs um i didn't see anything and tell me if you think I'm, I'm barking up the wrong tree here but i didn't see anything in the framework explicitly about assessment and i didn't i, I did see some stuff about um kind of building building on students prior knowledge but i didn't see anything about teachers explicitly thinking about how they're going to structure information and the 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 communication or learning of information over longer time periods. Do you think there are things that uh, should be in the framework or not in the framework? Is there, are there things that you talked about in more detail? Um, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Uh, aspects of classroom practice where there's evidence that they make a difference for student outcomes. And so a couple of the things you've mentioned, certainly um, there would be evidence that, uh, you know, the spaced learning or distributed practice or whatever can make a difference. But um, I think that with the assessment piece, and I might come back and try and round this question out uh, towards the end, um, the quality teaching framework, when it was developed, um, was conceptualised as addressing both classroom practice and assessment practice. And so uh, you're probably um, looking at the classroom practice guide with its 18 elements and so on. There is also an assessment practice guide and the assessment practice guide only uses 15 of the same elements, but it's um, explicitly. So there is also an assessment practice guide um, that can be used explicitly by teachers to look at um, their approach to assessment and refining the kinds of demands they make on students in terms of assessment. 
But I think in terms of the, the broader um, reading of the quality teaching model, there are a whole lot of elements in there that I think are related very much to assessing students' ongoing learning. I mean, the element of deep, uh, deep understanding, for instance, is about checking the degree to which students are demonstrating a deep understanding of the key concepts and the relationships between them. Um, deep knowledge itself is an element where you're looking at the extent to which students are drawing on key disciplinary concepts as they're doing their work. Um, you know, higher order thinking is also uh, another way of um, assessing students' capacity to apply, analyse, judge all of those, you know, higher order um, issues. Uh, the um, element of substantive communication is about the degree to which students can talk or elaborate their responses. Um, high expectations, you know, also comes into, um, you know, thinking about assessment. So um, I think it is a mis understanding to um, think either that the quality teaching model is only about teaching and not about learning or to think that it doesn't um, pay any attention to assessment. In a way um, it requires that teachers are constantly monitoring what's going on in their classrooms and with their students to adjust their teaching, um, to adjust the activities that they engage students in to ensure that they um, achieve good learning outcomes. Thanks, Jenny. And I guess, I guess, in line with my question, did you find, and we'll we'll, we'll move into the pro- talking about the process of the quality teaching rounds shortly. But did you find that when you presented this model to teachers, or when you do present it to teachers, you, you find them asking questions in the way that I've been asking questions? And does, do any of them say, "Oh, yeah, but can we add this other thing that we think is really important"? And if they do say that, what's your advice to them? <laughs> Yeah, I think what, uh, yes, we do get asked questions. I mean, in the beginning, people would say, where's learning styles? Because everyone was on about learning styles. Um, you know, I've been asked, <laughs> yeah, I've been asked, you know, where's feedback? Um, but I guess w- what we end up talking about is that many of those kinds of ideas you can find in the, the elements of the model. There's a, an activity we often give our master's students here, which is to find any other articulation of good teaching, whether it's subject specific or um, oriented at Aboriginal students or whatever, and compare it to the elements of the quality teaching model. And what we typically find is there's an enormous amount of overlap. Um, but that the quality teaching model tends to be much more comprehensive. A lot of the other frameworks that are available tend to be more narrowly focused, for instance, on thinking or on um, you know managing classes and so on. Uh, so there's something about the breadth of this model that I find and that teachers seem to find really appealing. And one of my favourite quotes from a teacher who I interviewed once on this work, he'd been working with quality teaching for a couple of years. He was probably in his 40s, been teaching 20 odd years. And he said to me, this is the first time in my teaching career I feel I'm actually teaching students. Until now, I've just been giving them work to do. Wow. And to me, that was um, a statement of how this framework reconceptualized what teaching meant to him. Um, not, you know, he was a very accomplished teacher, deputy principal, but he now had a really clear idea of what it was that he was trying to achieve in a way that made him, him actually feel uh, better about the work he was doing as a teacher. Fantastic. Interesting. Fantastic. Is, 
is this is the framework equally applicable at all levels like uh, also when i was i was reading it like the the, fu- the final point under quality learning environment is student direction um you know i, I teach exclusively in year 11 and 12 and should you know should i be attempting to make my teaching more student directed or is it kind of like i should interpret all of these elements in the context of of my my classroom and and the curriculum um, and the end of your exams for example that i'm trying to support my students to do well in i think um what's really important about this framework is that it 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 provides a framework for thinking about teaching it's not um, overly prescriptive in the sense that the, the starting premise is that all lessons should score high in all elements um, in any context. And so, you know, it's always up for discussion as a former physical education teacher, for instance, with the element student direction. Uh, if I was teaching the javelin, <laughs> throwing the javelin, then student direction should score low. Totally. It's not explore the javelin lesson. It's stand <laughs> behind the line and don't move till I blow the whistle after you've thrown your javelins. Um, and so the, the particular relevance of an element uh, is up for conversation. But just to take your example of uh, senior maths, um, the idea of student direction is giving students some control over some significant parts of their learning. And we talk about a choice of activity, control over the pace or the overall time, or some input into the criteria by which they're going to be assessed. So there are the four forms of student direction that we talk about. I can imagine in a senior maths class, and I'm not a maths teacher, so correct me if I'm wrong, that you may well want to give students some control over the pace, different students some control over the pace at which they work or the overall time that they spend on one task um, compared to another because you probably are trying to really challenge those students who are um, working at an, at an accelerated pace um, and while really supporting those who need you know, extra help. So there may be some opportunities even in your senior maths classes where you want to think about um, what benefit there might be for students learning of giving them a little bit more control over some of those aspects. On the other hand, it may be that they all have to move through the curriculum at exactly the same pace and therefore, you know, um, your decision, your judgment as to when to move forward is, is ultimately what matters. But all it does is, when people work with the framework is enable them maybe be a catalyst for that kind of a conversation as we think through together well actually yeah maybe it would be helpful at times to do a bit more of that fantastic and interestingly we've actually just circled back in some ways to to assessment because when you talk one of the ways that you were talking about um student students directing the lesson in terms of the pace is very much related to assessment and using tools such as hinge questions to check for student understanding and determine whether you want to jump into the next section or whether you want to revisit something or go into a bit more depth uh, about something so that's interesting how it's kind of that assessment has emerged as you said as you promised that it would uh, (laughs) through that exploration of of student direction and i think ollie one of the different distinctions that I'd make is that some of what you're talking about with um, what did you call it before distributed practice and hinge questions I'd call sort of practices of teaching Um, whereas or teaching practices maybe these are particular teaching practices I think the quality teaching model is more about the practice of teaching 
uh, the kind of key concepts to guide teaching, just as we might think about the practice of law or the practice of medicine. What are the big ideas? And I think that's why it functions in the way it does and why teachers respond to it so well, is it does give them this real, real clarity about not the detail of the classroom practices, but the overall conception of what it is that I'm trying to achieve with my teaching. Sure. And what I'm hearing and what you're saying there is that um, maybe the quality teaching framework is attempting to deal more with the why rather than the how of teaching. Yeah, I think that's right. And it kind of also recognises that you can you can achieve what you want to achieve in very many different ways. And so the how is left up for grabs a little bit. You can have a very traditional teacher having kids working quietly and independently at their desks who still can deliver high intellectual quality, quality learning environment significance. You can also have someone working in sort of inquiry-oriented, group-oriented, you know, environments and still lift the intellectual quality, quality learning environment significance. So it doesn't dictate a particular way of teaching. And I think that's part of why it resonates with teachers. It's not telling them to forget everything they've been doing. Here's the new great way. It's saying it's actually building on what teachers already know and do in ways that I think are respectful of the enormous skill and experience and judgment that teachers bring to their practice. That makes a lot of sense. We might jump into talking about the process a little bit now. So the quality teaching around structure contains, from what I could gather, three main components. The first is essentially uh, getting teachers to, to read about and discuss the quality teaching framework. Um, the second is the observations in which your professional learning communities uh, in groups of anything from three to eight, I think it was, actually observe each other teach. And the third is the coding and the discussion that flows that. Um, I would love for us to go go into a little bit of detail about each of these steps and get a little bit into the nitty gritty of how exactly they're scaffolded in a way that teachers feel comfortable uh, in the quality teaching rounds. So the first thing you talk about is reading and discussion. So I'm really curious, what, how much do you give teachers to read? What do you give them to read? Do you give them time within the session to read it or do you get them to do some reading outside? And to what extent is it, sorry, I'm loading the questions on you here, but to what extent is it necessary um, to have kind of external trainers or people coming in to support this initial reading and understanding of the framework? Or is it something that you'd expect a school could do internally with a few resources that are freely available online? Uh, so... There's a couple of things. Um, the reading that we ask teachers to do is not directly related to the quality teaching framework or learning about the quality teaching framework. It's any professional reading they'd like to do in their professional learning communities of three to eight teachers. So um, we suggest that teachers um, you know, work in their groups and they might take turns to suggest a reading and the reading can actually be a TED talk or a YouTube clip or a policy document or anything. So it's about um, getting teachers talking about professional practice together and building the sense of community and building their kind of shared um, resources for enriching the conversations that they have in the discussion part of their quality teaching rounds. So um, quality teaching rounds happen independently of external trainers, but what we do is to um, run two-day workshops for 
two, at least two teachers per school to um, take them through the model, the quality teaching rounds process and how to work in ways that are productive and supportive with their peers. And then those two teachers, maybe more, go back to their schools and they are equipped to uh, set up quality teaching rounds and have a go at it with a group of volunteers. Um, and so that's, I think, one of the beauties of this approach is that it's absolutely not dependent on the expert. And in fact, what we argue is that the quality teaching model and the protocols that we've established around doing quality teaching rounds do the heavy lifting of facilitation. And I think that's um, a real benefit of the approach. Yeah, that's, that's great when the, when the framework can actually do the work for you. Yeah. Um, so at what point do, so I assume that these two or more teachers who come and do the two-day training, they, they go back to their schools and um, when you, so that reading or that reading and discussion, is that part of the two days or that's something that's within the schools? back to the schools as part of the rounds. So each day that we call a quality teaching round, I guess, and a set of rounds is when, let's say, there's four teachers in a professional learning community. A set of rounds is when each has taken their turn to host the, um, the lesson observation. And that typically would happen in... Um, uh, you know, we prefer to do whole day rounds, but some schools have done half day rounds where they do the whole experience in a half day. Whole day rounds are, are preferred and they might do one every week or one every two weeks. Probably one every three weeks is probably the biggest gap between rounds that we suggest so that teachers learning, uh, again, is spaced, um, but you know can build on what they've um, gained from previous rounds and uh, sort of accumulate so that they... Uh, take the whole four rounds together um, as their experience. So um, there was another part to your question that I did want to go back to, which I think was to do with when the reading happens. So teachers would agree to do the reading before coming to their professional learning community for the day when they're doing a round. And so they have already read the paper or looked at the YouTube clip or whatever it happens to be and they'd come together for you know maybe half an hour maybe up to an hour in the morning to have um, a, a conversation about that reading and that is quite distinct from anything that the people have done in the, the two-day facilitation workshop there's no real reading associated with the two-day workshop the two-day workshop uh, takes them through the research background and how we've um, come up with quality teaching and quality teaching rounds and some of the evidence that uh, has come from previous studies. Um, we then um, give teachers an experience of actually watching and coding a lesson so they um, deepen their understanding of the quality teaching model. They can be brand new to quality teaching. They don't need to have um, done anything with it beforehand. Then we spend um, time explaining how quality teaching rounds work and what are some of its essential features. And then we have teachers practice another lesson coding, but now using the protocols associated with quality teaching rounds. And then we typically spend time at the end having teachers um, working groups, their school groups or broader groups to think through how they might actually go about implementing quality teaching rounds in their own context. And that will vary a lot from school to school. That's the kind of structure in broad terms of the two-day workshop. And with that knowledge, we find that teachers 
parents feel that they are ready to go back into their schools and have a go at it, often by um, just finding a couple of colleagues, uh, obviously with the agreement of their principal, and, um, and having a go at doing a set of rounds. And then starting with volunteers seems to be really important because... Um, uh, you know, you've got that commitment and will, but what, what we find is in a lot of schools there's a real ripple out through the school as other people say, I'd really like to have a go at that too because they uh, see the positive experience that their colleagues are having. I really love some of the language you've chosen to I'm, I'm sure it's very consciously used around this framework. For example, teachers hosting the round. Um, so just a clarification, the teacher hosting the round is the teacher who is being obs- observed on that day and is it the case that the person who nominates the reading for that day is the teacher who's being observed? We have a, a kind of a list of things that we suggest that professional learning communities might want to uh, discuss and agree upon before they get started. And so, you know, sometimes it may be that the, the host teacher does suggest the reading, but other times they don't want to have to think about hosting the reading discussion as well as yeah. the lesson. And so we sometimes suggest, you know, perhaps the, the host teacher suggests the reading for the following week. Um, but, you know, it's flexible. We don't want to be too rigid with this because um, we know that school contexts and teachers are very different in terms of um, their needs. So there needs to be a degree of flexibility in how it's implemented, even though we do um, have these kind of essential features and we are looking for fidelity in terms of the implementation of the model, especially if people are doing this kind of work and calling it quality teaching rounds. We'd like to see some real integrity there in terms of its link back with what we've designed and tested. God, it relates to your fidelity tests, which we, we may, may come to later on. Um, I'm wondering, so these, obviously the two teachers, two or more teachers who go away and do the two days, they get a pretty good and deep understanding of the quality teaching framework. Um, I'm wondering when they take that back to their schools, because we haven't mentioned this yet, how is that framework shared amongst the teachers who are going to be within that professional learning community? Um, Do they use some videos that they had to buy or that were available freely online to do some practice coding together? Do they do some readings explicitly around the framework? Uh, What kind of things do they do? To do some coding of some sample videos that the um, New South Wales Department developed and we've actually got um, available how we coded those lessons so teachers can practice coding if they want to and then compare how they coded the lesson with how a a somewhat in quotation marks expert group coded the lesson Um, but even then we say to teachers like you know these are informed uh, views about how to interpret what was going on in those lessons but it's not necessarily the only way to interpret them and all the time we emphasise that it's the conversations that matter much more than the actual scores, especially when we're talking about professional development. Obviously, when we're doing research, we're looking for high levels of inter-rater reliability. Um, but it, it really is that... Um, oh, I've forgotten the thread of the question now, sorry. <laughs> That's okay. I was asking about familiarising the, the local teachers who hadn't gone to the external PD. 
Yeah, so what I wanted to go on to say was that in some schools, they just jump straight in the deep end, have a go at doing it. They don't need to practice coding, just code one of the lessons with your colleagues. It's not about getting the coding right, it's about using the coding process as an opportunity to talk about our teaching. So it's not just about giving you feedback on your lesson, it's actually using the opportunity to come into your classroom for us to have a conversation about teaching in our school. And so, yeah, they can jump straight in. And what we find, again, is that someone who comes cold to the quality teaching framework, using it for the very first time to code a lesson, uh, can code, like, often within one or, uh, yeah, often within one on many of the elements um, in, in terms of coding the same way that we would. So the, the explicitness, the level of specificity, I guess, that's there with the descriptions of the elements and the definitions, if you like, of each element and the one to five coding, which each number has a descriptor. And when teachers work through those, you know, they're making fairly straightforward judgments. I mean, just to give you an example, I think to get to a three in higher order thinking, there has to be at least one significant activity that involves higher order thinking during the lesson. To get to a four, about half the lesson has to involve students in higher order thinking. And to get to a five, most of the lesson involves most of the students in higher order thinking throughout the lesson. So it's kind of you know, a quasi quantitative judgment. And so if it's not the whole lesson and most of the students, then is it the half the lesson? If it's not that, or was there at least one significant activity? Or was it mainly lower order thinking throughout the lesson? And so uh, hopefully that example helps you to see that the, it's not that difficult to come to a common agreement uh, around the coding and, and in fact that's what we do in the discussion part of the lesson I may be jumping ahead there but it's about um, sharing how the individuals coded the lesson and then trying to come to a consensus based on all the information that the teachers bring to um, sharing their own codes that's really interesting because I can actually see how um, not going into a lot of detail about what is and what is not correct coding for various elements of a lesson could be better at promoting a discussion because if it would al allow teachers to perhaps more organically uncover and share their preconceived ideas, assumptions and knowledge about each of these domains and to kind of position the observation and the coding not as a grading of the teacher but more as a, a co-exploration of the concepts contained within the, within the quality teaching framework. That's exactly right. And in fact, um, because there's not only the one to five coding, but the definitions, teachers go back to our definitions and they say, well, I've, I always thought metal language was blah. And they'll go back and say, but metal language here says it can apply to visual, textual, or I can't even remember the detail, but all written material. So, you know, while there was nothing said, um, if you look at the symbols that were used and the teachers talk about symbols, then that's a clear example of middle language you know so they they keep referring back to the definitions um, as part of the process and in the end if they have a different definition I mean in a way it doesn't matter but it opens up the conversation and, and again you, you hit the nail on the head that's what's really important in this process and so there isn't a lot of work that necessarily has to be done in advance we think there is important work that needs to be done in advance of doing quality teaching rounds, basically so people don't um, 
uh, mess it up effectively by um, coming in heavy-handedly as if someone's the expert or um, misrepresenting the process as an, an assessment process rather than um, a kind of a learning process. And so it's just getting some of those concepts really clear before the, the people who are going to start it in a school begin uh, that we think is really critical to ensuring its success. And we basically have teachers universally saying that it's a positive experience, even though some of them come to it somewhat reluctantly. Great. So the next step in the process following the kind of getting your head around the framework, if that's something that you as a, as, as a PLC does, is the observations. I was wondering if there are any kind of key or crucial elements to these observations. Uh, what Do you give much guidance in terms of how this is done or do you find that teachers can generally naturally kind of do them um, in a supportive way anyway? guidance but basically um, yes uh, teachers are typically very respectful of being in, in each other's classrooms and one of the important things about rounds is that everybody takes their turn and so um, because you know that your colleagues are going to be coming and watching your lesson in uh, two or three weeks time or whatever it means that you know that whole do unto others thing really comes uh, into effect and we often say if there's a senior teacher in the group or even the principal and we've certainly had principals participate in rounds that they go first they borrow a class if they have to and, and teach the first lesson and it really flattens the kind of power dynamics because um, not only is everyone taking their turn to teach but in quality teaching rounds everyone takes their turn to speak at first uh, when they talk about how they've coded the lesson but I'm jumping ahead again to coding. With the observations um, it's about basically um, uh, taking some notes during the observations so that you can recall more of what happened during the lesson. It's about uh, you know distributing yourselves around the classroom in ways that feel comfortable so you're not all standing at the back with a clipboard or anything. You know I often suggest people sit to the side of the classroom and be fairly uh, inobtrusive and unobtrusive I meant and um, uh, if students are doing working groups or at their seats to certainly wander around and have a look at work and possibly even talk to students providing the teachers happy for that and I often say if there's six hands up in the room with students saying you know miss miss um, see if you can help if you've been watching the lesson um, mostly you can uh, follow enough to be able to help the students. I mean, not all, all of us can necessarily help with the calculus or whatever, but, um, you know, it's not in there to just judge the teacher in any way. It's there to use this opportunity to, to um, gather some evidence about a lesson, to open up a conversation about teaching. Cool. So I guess there is that key component to it that, all the people in the PLC, which could be up to an additional seven people, if, you, if your PLC is eight people big, are in that class together, which for me is quite a kind of new and novel idea, not something that I've encountered in observations before, but something that's really exciting to me because I've found that, for example, when I go to observe a colleague together with a, a pre-service teacher that I'm hosting, for example, the discussions are just are so, more, so much more rich afterwards. Um, I'm also interested, you talk then about... Sorry, did you want to say something? Oh, I just gonna. Well, I was just gonna add one thing, which is that we've found 
that if the teachers are from different parts of the school, so different stages in the primary school or different subject areas or faculties in the secondary school, that the experience is actually richer because you do have those conversations where if, you know, if it was just a group of maths teachers, for instance, um, they understand the leaps that you made in the presentation or they share uh, a lot of the kind of disciplinary knowledge or whatever. But when you've got the physical education teacher sitting there watching um, and experiencing the lesson as the students might be, um, you know, sometimes those outsiders to the discipline ask really important questions and it does open up and enrich the conversation. So it doesn't have to be about content um, knowledge. We find that even people who come from way outside are able to ask um, or to contribute really meaningfully to conversations about the pedagogy and its effects on student learning. So the third step is coding and discussion. And this is quite a sensitive kind of part or a sensitive time in in observations. I think personally, um, when I've conducted, when I've observed other teachers, sometimes I've done a really good job of this. And sometimes I've kind of left the conversations kicking myself saying, why did I say that? I shouldn't have represented things in that way. What advice do you have to PLCs uh, in terms of having this conversation right down to the level of detail of um, who speaks first? Um, do, you, do you time things to try to make sure that people aren't dominating the conversation? Is there any way you, you uh, suggest the kind of language people use from like, you know, nonviolent communication kind of backgrounds or anything like that? Um, how do you suggest that people do this? is that everybody codes the lesson independently on all 18 elements before they come to the discussion. So after the lesson, everyone goes away or you know can go and sit in the same quiet space and code on the 18 elements and write down why they coded the way they did. Just a few words. It doesn't have to be in great detail, but it means that when they then come to the conversation, it doesn't matter who starts, but for the first element, you know, one, let's call it deep knowledge. Someone will say, well, on deep knowledge, I coded this lesson uh, for because what I saw happening was a sustained focus on key concepts, but I don't think the relationships between them were really drawn out, and so I didn't think I could code it a five. Uh, and they might give a couple of examples. And then the second person speaks and says, well, I actually only coded it a two because even though um, the lesson seemed to be on a particular concept, I thought it was treated pretty superficially. And if you look at the definition of a three and a four, I actually don't think it meets those criteria. And the third person might say, well, I actually coded it a three because I felt right in the middle and I'll give some evidence and an example. And then finally, the fourth person will speak. And one of those people is the teacher who taught the lesson. And what it means is that um, everyone has their chance to speak. It doesn't matter whether you're the principal or the first year art teacher. You share the way you coded the lesson. And so it's not only about, in a way, teaching publicly. It's about thinking publicly with your colleagues. Um, and so that also can be a little bit daunting at first. But what we say to teachers is sometimes the outlier is really important because it opens up the conversation. You know, if three people saw it as a five and one person, uh, and teachers will often say this, they'll say, oh, I must have got it wrong because I only coded it a two. But in fact, their insight is really important. It may well be, to use that same example, that there was so much covered in the lesson that 
the teacher didn't feel any of it was really done in depth. And so then we open up a conversation, well, how much can we do? How, how much should we do? How much can we do with these kids? How much have we been doing? Um, you know, what are our expectations here and so on? So after everybody shares their codes and their reasons for their codes, then we open it up to a discussion where we try and come to an agreed score. So in light of all the information, what teachers will say, well, actually, I was really convinced by your argument that it is a four. Uh, and others will say, well, not so sure. And anyway, they'll have that discussion. But again, it's not just about the numbers. The, the numbers enable the specificity for them to start really talking about teaching. And then if we take it on the flip side, and let's say everyone coded at a one or a two, some people um, are quite nervous about giving their peers a one because they see a one as a, a negative thing. But to use my javelin example earlier, sometimes a one is the best score for the particular activity. And not only that, because the teacher who taught the lesson has coded the lesson him or herself, chances are that person coded it a one also because they know that in that lesson there was no attention to, let's say, cultural knowledge or whatever it happens to be. And so again, we find that the model and the protocols really do the heavy lifting of facilitation. Do you, do you find that it works best when the host who has self-coded speaks first or last or something in between or it doesn't matter? It doesn't really matter but what we recommend I, I guess most recently having done this for a number of years now is that people just take turns to go first so that you know teacher one runs the discussion for the first element and teacher two runs it for the second and teacher three runs it for the third and, and teacher four runs it for the fourth and then teacher one will go back and, and run the conversation for the fifth element. So they just keep taking turns at going first and really um, working the conversation until they feel that it's really come to a conclusion. And the conclusion is not just about the number again. The conclusion is about, well, what does this mean for the way we do group work? And how might we think about doing that differently? And what would different look like in this lesson? Um, or, you know, are our expectations of our students actually um, uh, beneath their capabilities? And do we need to be thinking about perhaps expecting a little bit more of these kids? But how can we support them to do that? And how do we establish a quality learning environment when some of them are so unruly or whatever? So the conversations, you know, can really broaden out. And that's why often the conversation even with only four teachers might go for two hours oh and and also i'm sure the conversation goes into places such as oh when i saw you do this that made me think about this thing that i do uh, in my lessons and so it even even sparks even even more conversations and in fact what we find is that um, teachers say they learn as much from watching other people teach as they do from the feedback they get on their own lesson and you know that opportunity just to go into each other's classrooms is something that um, ought not to be but often is a bit of a luxury in schools. What's the most out of these three steps and all the kind of steps that are involved in the quality teaching rounds what are the most common mistakes that you see professional learning communities make? somehow get into their heads that um, they should be giving the teacher feedback. So we have seen PLCs that send the teacher away and then bring her, her or him back in and say, this is how we coded your lesson. That's a huge mistake. Um, I think uh, 
sometimes people want to cut corners and not code before coming together. Uh, and I think that's a huge mistake because it's like having a, a tutorial or a class where you've asked everyone to read something and come together to discuss it. And if only two people have done the reading out of the 20, you can't have much of a discussion. It's the same kind of effect uh, there. And I think also then rushing the conversation at the end. And, and that's why we really prefer, if schools can afford to do it, that they create the time for teachers to have whole day rounds rather than half day rounds because then they really do have time to explore and elaborate and, and refine together. Yeah, there's some key things. Thanks for pointing them out. Thanks so much for pointing them out, Jenny. You're welcome. I guess the thing that I found most inspiring, one of the things I found most inspiring and encouraging about this whole framework was the kind of impact that can occur through just a single round. Um, you know, from a lot of the research I've read on teacher professional development, it's been my impression that what needs to happen is um, a teacher needs to be engaged often with external support from outside of the school over an extended period of time, um, which can you know, often take cost a lot of money for schools and also be quite a drain, a drain on the school's resources. But you, the way you reported, especially in, in relation to comparing the set groups, which had a specified number of rounds and the choice groups, which were able to choose how many kind of rounds they did, was that even with the choice groups who did one round, um, you saw, still saw significant uh, positive changes to the teaching. Was that something that surprised you at all? I wasn't sure what to expect, but yeah, it was really quite exciting to see that it can make a difference with um, such a small kind of investment. Um, and I mean, it, there is an investment, and schools do say sometimes it's hard to find uh, casual teachers to, or, or others who can step into the classroom to release people. Um, you know, there's certainly a cost involved in that. But when you think of the payoff, <laughs> it's pretty interesting that um, one set of four rounds or four days of professional learning for a group of teachers. In fact, sometimes only two days spread over time within the form of four half days um, can have that kind of an impact. Um, and I think it's because it actually the framework helps teachers to think about what is good teaching in a way that's really accessible. And so you know, having understood these concepts of intellectual quality, quality learning environment and significance, it's really easy to take that into every lesson you teach from then on. You know, it's not, it's it's just those broad concepts. As a teacher, you're in front of the class and you're thinking, actually, I need to give them some explicit quality criteria. Or, um, uh, you know, this is opportunity to work on their language to ensure that all the students are, are with me and haven't missed out any, on any of the language that can affect their learning or whatever it happens to be. So um, teachers say to us, once they learn the framework, they can't go back. I'm sure there are some listeners out there who are thinking, it's all well and good that you change teachers' teaching, but what impact are you having on students' learning? What would you say to that kind of a question? It's, well, it's the, you know, it's the holy grail, isn't it? Um, and it's what we all care about. Uh, anecdotally, there's a lot of evidence that's impacting on student learning uh, from teachers. 
um, from schools. We're hearing schools telling us that they used to be at the bottom of the, the group in terms of um, you know, their particular region or area or diocese in the Catholic system or whatever, and they are now uh, amongst the top schools. Um, we do have some evidence from one of our early studies that NAPLAN results were improving in schools where, um, particularly in primary schools, where there were eight teachers out of maybe 11 or 12 in the school who were participating in rounds and um, you know, they had demonstrable changes in NAPLAN scores. We would love to be able to demonstrate the impact um, on student learning. Um, measurement of that becomes a bit of a challenge, but we have actually just uh, recently received notification from the Australian Research Council that they will be funding a large project over the next four years where we are trying to uh, demonstrate the impact of quality teaching rounds on student learning outcomes using pro progressive achievement tests mainly. So there are tests <coughs> that look at student achievement over within a one-year period rather than relying on something like NAPLAN results, which of course becomes very complicated, um, especially in the secondary schools. So um, I guess in short, we do have some evidence of impact on student outcomes and what we are looking for in this next big study is to really demonstrate that if we can with another randomised control trial um, in ways that are seen as, uh, you know, um, uh, at the top of the game in terms of rigour and sophistication. That's super exciting. It is for us too. <laughs> So maybe if if we round off this discussion explicitly about the the rounds with a little bit of how it works. So in your in your paper, you talk you had a section entitled I think it was how 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 do the rounds work or how it works. And in if I translate it into the language that I'm familiar with, there were kind of three things that that you suggested the rounds do. So the first is you improve teachers' pedagogical knowledge. That is, you give them a framework that they can draw from. And many of the quotes that you had within the paper, uh, and also in your paper with Bo about um, pre-service and, and early career teachers, was that finally they felt like they had a framework in their minds of what teaching looks like. So that was really powerful. The second thing you talked about was essentially developing a culture, or the way I would interpret it is a shared language for learning amongst the school. And to me, that was super exciting because that's something I'd love to have at my school more in, so that we can speak more about teaching and learning with a shared vocabulary. And the, and the final thing was you talked about flattening power relations or, or hierarchies within schools. Um, and that's because of the nature of the rounds. And you kind of alluded to this in terms of principals teaching first, for example, or, or leaders or learning specialists, whatever they are, hosting the first, uh, the first kind of session as flattening power relations. I was wondering if you wanted to make any comments about these three elements of how it worked uh, and or comment on the, ones, the one that you, most, is most relevant to you. Uh, I think all three are really important and I think they are the mechanisms that enable quality teaching rounds to work. And that pedagogical knowledge we've talked about a little bit earlier uh, in terms of teachers just having so much information and is this way of distilling it and giving um, teachers develop a whole lot more confidence because they feel they know what it is that they're trying to do and they can do it and the specificity of the quality teaching framework actually enables them to also think about well if I'm consistently scoring at a two or three or whatever it happens to be on this particular element I can see what you have to do to get a four or a five. I often say teachers don't know how good they are and this actually is a way of giving teachers some real affirming uh, 
input about their teaching uh, as well as maybe identifying some areas where they might want to do some work. But again, it depends on the lesson, the kids, the context, uh, the time of day, the point in the term, all of that sort of stuff. So that um, pedagogical knowledge stuff I think is really important. In terms of the culture, yeah, it's absolutely about the shared language for learning and I think that's perhaps the greatest contribution of the quality teaching framework is that it provides this very accessible set of concepts and language with which to talk about teaching practice. That means that whether you're a student teacher, a beginning teacher or someone who's been in the system for 25 years or more, uh, you can start to speak the same language and um, I mean, even a term like engagement is something that teachers understand in very different ways. What does an engaged classroom look like? You know, this framework doesn't, it's not the be all and end all. It's not the final word. It is a model. It's, it's a, a, you know, a beginning point for teachers to have really important conversations and to perhaps notice and discuss things that they might not otherwise notice. And then I think the power hierarchy stuff is really important as well um, because, you know, it doesn't matter whether it's um, to do with age or years of experience or faculties or, uh, you know, social cliques or whatever that have formed in a school. Uh, when you come together to do this kind of work, um, it, it means that people start to see each other differently. And there is a quote in the paper that it's quite amusing in a way, but I, I find it really quite powerful when there's that one very experienced teacher who says she was put in a PLC with people she didn't like. I think she says, I didn't like them and they didn't like me, but it was only on hearsay and reputation. And she says, when I was in the classroom and working with them, I learned to trust them and I learned who they really were. And um, that, that really captures it in a nutshell, I think. Fantastic. Yeah, I recall you said uh, you quoted her, and she said she didn't know the others from a bar of soap at the start, and she didn't didn't di- didn't know why, but she she didn't like them anyway. So <laughs> yeah, and 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 it was exciting also to read about how they. There was another quote in the paper where someone said, "I didn't realize this person was actually a teacher <laughs> at the school. I thought they were. I thought they were a, a parent who just never <laughs> left. And then I realized, you know, now they're a really good friend of mine through the through the teaching round. So so that was great." All right, we might move into just a few a few closing questions if that works for you, Jenny. Yes, good. Thanks. Okay, so what advice would you give to your first year researcher self? <laughs> I think the main thing I'd say is just to remain open. Um, I, I think constantly learning as a researcher is really important, and and so I find that I'm still doing that. You know, I'm doing work, um, learning you know new concepts, new methods, and so on. Uh, you know, even after however long I've been in this game, which must be. 30-something years probably since I first started working as an academic. And so that being open, uh, I think, is really important. The second question is, can you briefly tell us about a a moment where a teacher profoundly influenced the direction of your life? Well, there was that year 11 teacher I spoke of earlier who said it would be a waste for me to be a teacher. Um, And I think that was probably pretty important. I think sometimes it's just the really small things that you remember. I, I remember a year 11 history essay I wrote and my teacher wrote on it something like I look forward to following your brilliant career and (laughs) I mean I was quite stunned by that piece of feedback but I think it gave me a belief in myself that I maybe didn't have 
previously. And, you know, so that was uh, really heartening. Uh, and then I still remember my year nine history teacher again, whose uh, last name was Don't, spelled, I think, D-O-H-N-T. And, and she always said, when in doubt, don't. And I haven't exactly lived by that motto, but it's often in my mind, whether that's to do with professional things or, uh, you know, just life. Um, you know, so, so I guess what I'm saying is that some of the very small moments of interaction with a teacher, I think, can have quite profound influences on students' lives. And we're certainly learning that in the study we're doing of student aspirations, where we're talking to kids about the impact of teachers and, and hearing some, some pretty uh, amazing stories, both positive and negative, about how the small things teachers say and do can make a difference. That makes a lot of sense. It's something I wanted to mention earlier when you did recount that story of the teacher suggest asking you why, why on earth you'd want to become a teacher um, was that something I try to do every year is to pick out a couple of students who I actually think would be good teachers. And I'm lucky enough to teach year 11 and 12 students. So they're kind of graduating and thinking about that time. And th- something I do and something others, my, other teachers might like to do in terms of building our future teacher workforce is I'll, I will write a note to those individuals that says, you know, something along the lines of, I've been watching you this year. I've been watching you help other students. I've been watching the way you approach your work. And I think you'd be a really fantastic teacher. Um, and I just try to give that to however many students I, I see each year um, who I think would be good teachers. And so I'm, I guess, that's my little way of hoping that I'm I'm supporting building the workforce in the future. Speak to me, and I bet it makes a difference to them. Fingers crossed. So, also, um, in terms of where you get your educational fix from, is there anyone you follow? I'm not sure if you're a tweeter or not. Anyone you follow on Twitter? Any academics you particularly think it's really worth looking into their work? Uh, who should who should listeners be be following up with after they listen to this podcast? That's a really big question. I'm so busy doing my work that I, I guess I don't uh, routinely follow anyone in particular, but I, I get um, a lot of uh, new insight from the work I do with my PhD students, actually, because I'm constantly reading you know, their drafts and working with them on ideas. And so that's really very diverse. I, I supervise students who uh, are looking at the experience of Indigenous women in universities through to someone who's almost finished their study of students who would be first in family to attend university and someone else who's looking at the impact of um, school autonomy movement on the work of principals. So, you know, I'm reading widely, but there isn't uh, a particular individual um, that I follow. And the final question, any last calls to action or or things you would like for listeners to do? And I'll I'll tack onto this very last question. How can people find out more about uh, quality teaching rounds and and where can they find information if they want to either engage in some of your training or try to do it uh, independently in their schools? I guess I'd discourage trying to do it independently without... um perhaps at least someone participating in one of our workshops. Um, To find out about those workshops, uh, probably easiest just to email qtr at newcastle.edu.au and our uh, wonderful 
assistant will be able to help. We don't necessarily uh, have a whole lot of workshops scheduled in advance. Often we do them when, when we you know, get some interest. We can travel to other places to deliver a workshop or people can come to us. Um, and so I think if people were just to, you know, even Google QTR, at the moment a lot of the material that exists um, is held within the New South Wales Department of Education and Training because they, or Department of Education now, because they invested in some of the early work. But we're just working on a new kind of collaboration agreement with them that um, I'm hoping within the next few months will make the material much more widely accessible to other jurisdictions. So um, as a last call to action, I guess, uh, keep on learning and um, you know, be mindful of the enormous wealth of knowledge and um, good sense that teachers have and, and let's try and find ways to share that. Uh, and I guess you know, we're finding that quality teaching rounds is one way that is quite powerful um, for doing that, but I, I think you know, even if it's done in, in different and smaller ways in, in schools and staff rooms, um, that learning from each other remains a really important part of being a, uh, an educational professional. Jenny Gore, thanks so much for your time today. It's been a mammoth interview um, and it's, it's just so exciting uh, to be presented with such an, such an exciting, such a comprehensive and, su and such a fantastic framework that does so much work and has so much potential to improve teaching and learning in Australia. So thanks, thanks for your time today, Jenny. Thank you. Really enjoyed it. Bye, everyone. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the ERRR podcast with Professor Jenny Gore. As always, you can find show notes with links to all the resources that were mentioned at ollielovell.com forward slash podcast. And if you did enjoy this episode, then please share it with your friends and colleagues. If you've really been enjoying the ERRR podcast, I'd love for you to consider supporting the production of this show through making a donation on Patreon. If you're an ongoing listener, a fan of the ERRR and value it as a professional learning resource, a one-off or monthly donation would help me to cover the costs and help the podcast to be more sustainable in the long term. Check out patreon.com forward slash E-R-R-R to explore the possibility of supporting the show. Thanks for your time in listening today. Have a wonderful week and until next time, keep learning. This podcast is part of the Australian Educators Online Network, aeon.net.au. Thank you.